Hey guys, today we have a special guest. Melinda Fisher, known as Midger, is an leadership expert, corporate facilitator, mentor, author, and keynote speaker. She's a lawyer and former partner of Shine Lawyers, an ASX-listed company and one of Australia's largest conversation law firms. She began her career as an IT consultant for PricewaterhouseCooper for practicing law and then finding her passion in the field of learning and development. She specialises in the areas of authentic leadership, building career confidence, and women's, and women's mentoring programs. Her clients include the likes of Toyota, North Queensland Cowboys, SAP, Queensland Law Society, WSP, Australian Trade College, Queensland RSL, and Australia Legal Practice Management Association. So quite a few amazing clients. She's the author of two books, Great Lawyer to Great Leader, and Confidence, How to Be Your Most Authentic, Courageous, and Unshakable Self. She lives on the Gold Coast with three children, and if you want to find out more about her and practice, go to www.midja.com.au. Super excited to have you on the show today, Midja. Yes, I'm super excited to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Most welcome. What I like to do when we get into these shows is just really go back to the beginnings of, of your basic history. Where did you, where did your career start? How did you get into Price Waterhouse and what inspired you to go down that road in the first place? Um, and so I, I grew up, uh, please don't hold this against me, anyone that knows where Ipswich is, but I grew up in Ipswich. I don't admit that to too many people, but I did. And um, my family, uh, a very proud coal mining family. So my dad was fourth, fifth generation coal miner in Ipswich. Um, so worked underground in the mines, hard physical work. Um and so for me, I was, um, I don't know, he wanted something different for myself and for my siblings. And I was always told I had the gift of the gab. No. No. I don't Even believe as, it. Oh, you don't believe it. Even as a young child. And I talk about this when I talk to people about, not when I'm mentoring people about their magic and about what's, what what they do that just comes naturally to them that maybe doesn't come naturally to other people and and I go back and ask them to think about their story um, and for me I have a very vivid memory in year three with show and tell and my kids now do show and tell and how much excitement like I was just super excited about show and tell and the other kids weren't like the other kids were really nervous about it and were like, mm, we don't like it and we don't know what to talk about. I'm like, I'll do it every day if you want me to do it. And um, and so even from that very, very early first childhood memory, I knew that I loved just that oral communication, uh, connecting with people and telling stories. Um, so I knew that. And so um, uh, my goal was to become a politician. So that's, that's why I did law, um, was to go into politics. Um, and my grandfather actually was, was a writer and uh, he was a coal miner but also a writer and um, wrote a lot for papers. He wrote poetry. He was an amazing man. Um, never went to university or didn't have that opportunity but did that. And he thought I'd be great at politics or a good lawyer or a good barrister. So it was actually my pop that steered me in that direction. And my dad was like, well, 
you shouldn't just do one degree. If you're going to go to university, they have these double degrees now, so you should do two degrees. Why not? I'm like, of course, Dad. You know, why not? So I did IT as well. Um, so I did an IT and law degree back in the 1990s where that was, uh, I think there was like four or five of us. Yeah, I was about to say, it would be a great deal at that time. Uh, and an IT degree was then about like C++, C++ coding and SQL, SQL and all those old languages that obviously aren't, aren't used much anymore in IT. But um, uh, And luckily enough, I got chosen for the Pricewaterhouse graduate program. And to be really honest, which I am always honest and really authentic, um, it just paid really well. It paid a lot more than the law art firms were offering. So I thought, you know, at 23 years of age, I'm like, I'm going with Price Waterhouse. Um, of course, it has a wonderful reputation as an organization. And I got to spend some time in the States uh, working for them over there. Um, and yeah, so why not? So it was. It was a, an interesting ride into, you know, straight into the corporate life to be at one of the big four. Okay, so big four, you've got a degree that not many people have at the time. How did that go? What? How did the time at PricewaterhouseCooper go? What did you learn and why the move to shine afterwards? Um, so I talk a lot about culture and I run a lot of workshops on company culture and values and, and values alignment and all of that kind of stuff. And for me, I knew the minute I walked into Pricewaterhouse that it wasn't for me. So I, I liken it to now at the moment if I walk into a City Beach store. So if I walk into City Beach to buy something for my kids, I know I don't belong in City Beach. Like I go, oh my goodness, and the people, they're like, yo, and they've got those tag things on and it's all noisy and loud and messy and I'm like, this is not, this is not my place. Um, and I felt a little bit like that, um, to be honest with you, at Pricewaterhouse. I kind of felt that um, the culture didn't, didn't really resonate with me and, and, and who I kind of was. Um, and, of course, culture and values – you know, values aren't good or bad. They're just different. Different from people. So yeah. you, want to re you want to repel certain people if they don't fit yes, your culture and want to attract the ones who do. Yeah. If, so, you, if you've actively created a culture, that is. Yes. If you're being deliberate around your culture, you absolutely want people to walk into your organization or walk into your shop and go, absolutely, this is my tribe. I belong here or I don't. And so I, I just did the whole, I wasn't at Price for very long, like less than a year. And I was, I just was in that imposter syndrome the whole time. So I just put the suit on, put the face on, put the suit on, went in um, and met some great people. Actually met my ex-husband there. So oh, wow. um, we ended up getting married a year later. So um, I was meant to be there um, and certainly meant to experience that. Um, but felt, yeah, even the work itself didn't really connect with me. And I thought, you know what, I do want to use my, my law degree. And so I quit Price Waterhouse. I was working in Sid at the Sydney office at the time, quit and just came back to Queensland. Okay. And a few people were like, um, you don't have a job. Like, why did you quit? 
And I'm like, it just felt like the right thing to do. Um, and that's really what got me the job when I went for the interview at Shine Lawyers. So Steve Roach, the managing partner and, and one of the founders of Shine Lawyers, he interviewed me and one of his question, one of his first questions was, so you quit one of the big four, you quit Pricewaterhouse and you had no job to go to. And I said, yep, didn't feel right, I was out. And he goes, that's gutsy, I like you, can you start on Monday? <laughs> and I said, yes, I can. And that was it, that was really the interview. He didn't ask me anything else. He just liked that I did that. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. People said it would go against me, and I'm like, well, there you go. There was a decision I made that, um, yeah, got me actually the job. And um, I felt like I belonged immediately, and I stayed 19 years and was a partner there for many years. Wow. Yep. Well, that's, <laughs> a, that's a thing, though. When you make moves like that, it attracts a certain type of person. Yeah. That's right. And, and, and so culturally at Shine, um, I just fitted in and, and, you know, there was no, I didn't have to pretend to be someone I wasn't. They were really accepting of me and, you know, I could be a bit quirky and <laughs> say what's on my mind. Um, and, you know, I like to have a lot of fun and, and uh, even though obviously the practice of law is, is serious. And the clients I worked with, you know, serious um, incidences and just huge things that have happened in their life. And so that is very serious, but I never take myself very seriously. Or, and so I was allowed to play and, um, yeah, really develop as a leader and just, I don't know, find myself there. It was just a great environment. Okay, so I'm assuming this is really where you built the building blocks for what you do now. In terms of getting those skills and developing your own leadership style. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I certainly think I was influenced by um, the the top like managing partners and, and senior partners at Shine. And, you know, Shine obviously grew. When I started, there were 40 of us, I think. When I left, there was about eight or 900 um, we'd taken on phenomenal cases to the high court. Um, we'd done big class actions against McDonald's and Alcoa. And, and so for me, I learned about, you know, taking risk. I learned about backing yourself. Um, it was also an environment where you were kind of thrown in and you either, you either sunk to the bottom of the pool or you, you, you swam. Um, and and people were given opportunity. You know, I was given opportunity um, probably before my time. Um, so I learned all of that about about leadership and about that having that vision, about having the courage. Um, and I think the area of law that we did, so we were in personal injury, dealing with everyday people that have had significant events happen in their life that side is around empathy and understanding and humility and when people everyday people are trusting you um with this so it was a lovely balance it was a lovely balance of that confidence and courage you need in business but when dealing with people that empathy and understanding and humility that you need 
They used to do a lot of um, radio ads and billboards, I remember. Yes. Yeah. So um, because, of course, our work was very broad the public yeah so it wasn't as if uh, we were working from it wasn't business to business law um and so it was everyday people that would ring up and and ask us to represent them and also hopefully not a lot of repeat business (laughs) you know so you know in a lot of commercial firms and corporate firms of course you just keep getting repeat business from clients whereas our work wasn't like that so it was you know, new clients were needed all the time because hopefully they only had one claim. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> On that side, were you involved in the marketing at all or how they made those decisions about where they were doing the marketing for Shine? I wasn't involved. Um, so we had, yeah, obviously a marketing cheat uh, team. Um, one of my very good friends was uh, chief marketing officer at, shine for many years um and is now up at the cowboys hence why i do some work with the branding team and a marketing team up at the cowboys um and so yeah ran some very clever they ran some clever ads i'm just wondering why it stopped or whether it was actually getting the results that they wanted yeah well there's there was obviously there's obviously been a whole lot of regulation happen um in the legal sector since the early days when i worked at shine so there's a lot more restriction around what advertising, around what lawyers can say about no win, no fee and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so that's certainly changed. So the market has changed, the regulation has changed as well. Um, and yeah, and I was lucky enough at Shine. So I practiced for the first 10 years. So I was kind of practicing law and managing our Gold Coast office down here at Shine for many years. And then slowly, I just began to work in learning and development and the people and culture side of things. And I just did that on the sly to start with. So I was like, so I was still running the office and billable hours and stuff, but I was like, you know, I was coaching people and mentoring people and doing people's induction and strategy stuff and... And then after a little while, um, yeah, that was what I wanted to do. And I became then, I, I moved over and I moved into the people and culture team and was the lead facilitator and coach and mentor and did that full time and loved it. Loved it. What does it mean to be a partner in China in terms of conversation and how that arrangement worked when you were, became a partner? Yeah, so it's an interesting one because... Um, you know, when I first started at Shine, like uh, many law firms, um, there are, you know, there are partners that own the firm, so there are equity partnerships, um, and then there are uh, salary partners as well. Um, but the partnership group really is the leadership team and is making decisions about the firm and the future of the firm and obviously mentoring and and being those role models for solicitors. Um, as the legal profession is changing, um, and I, it was one of the catalysts, I think, for me leaving and, and starting my own kind of business and doing my own thing, is that um, Shine and many other law firms are now becoming incorporated entities. Mm-hmm. So um, with shareholders, 
with boards, with uh, formal executive teams. So it's now a different structure. So the, the partnership is no longer, I suppose, what it used to be. You no longer, have, you no longer have lawyers running. You have board directors and That's business right. people running a law firm as a business. Yes, and this is a thing that comes up all the time is, you know, like, is law a business or a profession? And when I, this book around Great Lawyer to Great Leader that I've just written and the work I do with law firms, um, uh, it's it makes, I think, the practice of law, the business of law, uh, legal leadership um, have its own unique differences and and um yeah and things you have to you have to be mindful of i think um in in running a, a business in the legal profession and even lawyers themselves we have a number of sort of traits and characteristics that uh <laughs> i've there was one article i forget what it's richard someone i can't remember his name but it's a famous article that says um managing lawyers is like herding cats <laughs> um, and I, I can kind of agree with that. And I think I can because I'm a lawyer, so I know yeah. kind of what we're like. And it is like herding cats sometimes. Well, it takes um, a certain personality yeah. to be able to get up on, get up in front of people and uh, argue very serious cases and have the confidence behind yourself. Like, you need to have unfaltering confidence in yourself and in the case. Yeah, it takes some ego to do that. Um <laughs> And also lawyers, of course, we can be highly sceptical uh, as a group. So we, we challenge, we're highly sceptical, we're quite autonomous um, in, in how we work. Sometimes we can be a bit antisocial, not all of us, some of us uh, love to be quite social, but you know, there are some of the traits that, um, that generally lawyers can display and sometimes, yeah, hard to manage, hard to lead. I found that as a junior lawyer, as a junior lawyer, I was admitted, you know, maybe I was post-admission. So when you're admitted as a solicitor in the in the Supreme Court, that's kind of a very important date because that gives you your seniority. So I was admitted in 2000. And, but I would be managing and leading people in my team that were admitted in like, you know, 1992 or, you know, in the early 90s. And it's kind of seen as, you know, if someone has more seniority than you, um, there is a certain level of respect um, and autonomy uh, that you should extend to that lawyer. Um, and it can get you into trouble because obviously as a leader, you, you are accountable uh, for the work. It is up to you to, to supervise work. Um, so it's a tricky one. You know, you, you it's it's hard for, for young lawyers, I think, to be able to lead and manage sometimes. Manage for people who are much senior, yeah, much senior yeah. than in terms of the age. Yeah, and post-admission years and all of that. So, yeah, makes for interesting work. How do they do it? Um, oh, I think it starts with the culture of the firm. And... Um, that, that that equality piece around the firm and that that ability to make mistakes and that failure is okay and and that we can all ask for help, no one knows all the answers, all of that kind of stuff that must be modelled by senior leadership. 
will impact them, of course, down the whole firm. Um, and that, you know, that vulnerability piece, all of that, you know, if you've got that in a firm, then you can have honest, open conversations and feedback and you can be coaching um, and feedback up, down and sideways. But if the walls are up um, and, you know, it's very ego-driven and, you know, it even comes down to, like, the reward and compensation schemes in, in firms as well. You know, what's rewarded in a law firm? What behavior? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, all of that kind of stuff. I think there's a whole heap of things in the people and culture space and just that senior leaders can do to um, to create a culture where everyone is, is open to that, open to feedback um, and that accountability responsibility piece. So with the stuff you're doing these days, is it more about culture change management or just like ongoing kind of training stuff that you go and help them yeah. do stuff that they can then take and the leadership team will implement themselves? So I'm um, so I'm interested primarily in that in that leadership authentic kind of leadership space and uh, a part, a big part of that for me is cultural leadership. So it's kind of, for me, kind of a standalone module. A lot of people talk about, like, operational leadership. A lot of people talk about strategic leadership, um, you know, change management leadership, all that kind of stuff. So for me, I just have an interest in cultural leadership and and what leaders are doing uh, to build culture, to be deliberate around it, uh, you know, rituals, artefacts, you know, storytelling, um, all of that kind of stuff, you know, what leaders are doing in that kind of space. So... Talk us through um, the process for one of the organisations you've worked with, perhaps? Yeah, okay. Um, so in one organisation I worked with, um, we wanted to just do an organisational piece first. That was a piece on uh, values for that organisation. And I talk about getting real with values and the shiny brass plaque syndrome, you know, which we see, I see values that are on a plaque out the front whenever I walk into any law firm, any organisation, I see the values, they're out the front. And um, I, I ask, like, the owners or the leaders, what do you think your people feel when they walk past those values? Uh, do they uh, is it is it spot on? Do they feel that I experience this every single day when I'm here, and this is absolutely the way we work, or do they, you know, spit at it <laughs> from a, a yeah. metaphor point of view? Like a you know, yeah, right. Do they roll their eyes at it? Um, and so the first thing often I do is just to get really clear on what the values are and whether that means. Um, interviews and, and surveying the whole firm, parts of the firm, part of the organisation to see what the values are at at the moment. Then around that value values piece, then um, breaking that down then into behaviours. Because often organisations will have a number of values. They might have, you know, around here it's trust, it's integrity, it's creativity, it's family, it's belonging, whatever, whatever their values are. 
but getting Doesn't really mean, I think. Clear, yeah let's get clear on it then let's workshop what that actually means and for each value having three or four uh, behaviors around here this is what we do so to me values is around here this is what we believe in so we believe in x y and z because of because we believe in that around here this is what we do so here are our behaviors and then I also work with organizations around language. And then I go, okay, so because of what we believe in and because of what we do, this is the language that we use. Because culturally, of course, language is so important. And so we break down and sometimes I have a look at um, like all of their documentation and their intranet and we just go through all of that communication piece and make sure that there's a language alignment with culture and values um, and behaviors as well. Um, we also dig up and find uh, the stories behind the values. So I think that's really important. So if someone, so at Shine, we had three values, which I will remember till I die because they were in everything we did. I always stand up for the little guy, number one value, dare to be different and ahead of the pack. So they were our three values. And we had uh, behaviors and story, like I knew stories and we would tell stories every week around those three values. And so I encourage the organizations I work with to have like the folklore, if you like, to have the, uh, uh, not the urban myths, but like these urban legends of, you know, why, why is stand up for the little guy a value? Where does that come from? And because um, those stories will draw people in. So that's some of the work I do, I suppose, on an organisational level. And then with a leadership team, uh, what we'll work through is then your personal values as a leader and your personal legacy, your purpose. We want to align that with the organisation you're working for and get alignment there about, about why you're working for this organisation, what you as contribute. That's right. We want alignment. We then want, you know, your behaviors. We want to grab your personal stories as a leader and how we're going to weave those into your leadership style and brand. Um, and then, of course, with, uh, within a leadership development program, then we'll work on some mindset stuff for leaders and then skill set. So then around, you know, communication, you know, uh, communicating with influence and coaching and, um, listening skills and all that kind of then um, more hands-on skill-based kind of here's a difficult question mm. when people are a good fit in terms of the work they put out but aren't a good fit for the culture how have you dealt with that and how do you recommend that the companies that you've worked with have dealt with it um, I think they are the trickiest people to manage in an organization and I think it takes leaders to be really courageous and brave to let those people go and I've I've experienced that myself some of my biggest billers or in terms of productivity and billing as lawyers in teams that I've run and led um, have not been cultural fits it's very difficult when they're I your best. I can imagine, that, especially when you're saying go. 
they've got the ego, they've got the ability to bill really well. As a business thing, they're like, why would I let this person go? They're billing so much, but maybe they don't care about the little guy so much. They don't yeah. have that empathy. Yeah, and they um, uh, and they just don't align with your culture. As we said, they'll they'll slot into another law firm or another organization, and they will be perfect there. You know, so again, it's no. Um, it's, oh, around some behaviors and cultural pieces. That's why if organizations do the work on that behaviors piece and the language piece, it makes these conversations easier because you can say to someone, well, look, around here, we believe in always standing up for the little guy. And it means that when we're dealing with clients, we do X, Y, and Z. And when we're talking to clients, this is the language we use. And what I've observed in the last month is your interactions with clients have been X, Y, and Z. And this is the feedback I've got from clients. Now, your behavior is not aligned with what what we believe in as an organization and what was spelt out to you. So it makes the conversations easier rather than um, we just don't like the way that you're talking to clients. It's like, well, what do you mean? Like, where is that? Like, just makes the conversations easier. Um, look, you can try to contain those people. So if... If you can contain them so they don't influence other people, um, it might work. Do you know what I mean? I don't, you know, maybe that's even, I don't know. I've had some people that have been asked to work from home, even. They're like, (laughs) like, culturally, you can't belong in this office. Um, I think that's a bit of a cop out. Um, I think that's a temporary band aid. It sounds to, to me like that person is not a fit for the organization unless they change. They really, if the organization stays true to the values, they need to move on. Yeah. Yeah. And that takes that courage to do it. And I think that the, the thing that the, the difference that needs to be made um, between that is uh, like values alignment and then um, some of the behavior and strengths and, and, and different ways of thinking. So, I think there absolutely has to be values alignment, but of course, in some respect, we want people to think differently. We want people to work differently. We want that uh, that richness and diversity of, of behavior and thoughts and strengths and all of that. So, the version good, but core values need to remain safe. Yes, yeah, that's right. So sometimes I work with organisations on that because. Uh, they, they they don't see the difference with that. And so we like people like us, just as human beings, of course. Yeah. it's this, We have bias towards people that are like us. If you talk like me, if you dress like me, if, if you act like me, then I like you. <laughs> and so we tend to hire the same and we tend to promote the same and we like to work with the same. So... I'm, I'm really careful when I'm coaching and giving advice around this that it is actually a misalignment with values and something deeper and, and, a, and a character or competence piece rather than just this person is just different to you. And actually, if you can both appreciate each other's points of view, this might actually be the best relationship ever because you're actually aligned at the core. You just 
act a little differently or, or um, come to a problem from a different angle. So I think that's a really, it's really important to remember that and kind of step back from that and take a, take a good look at it, a bit of a deeper look at it. These are difficult questions. Like it's very difficult to stay true to that core culture as far as I'm aware. But I think if you, the earlier you can get these pieces in, the better I'm assuming. Is that, would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I think, I, I think it is. And, um, because culture uh, can change it very quickly if you have a few of the wrong influences. I was reading, I was reading a book on uh, how environment shapes our behaviours. Yes. Um, Benjamin Hardy. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, yep. Will Patterson's work. He's talking about how your environment changes everything around you. So if you've got the wrong people, I'm assuming that will change the culture of everyone else as well, and their behaviours will start to adapt. Yep. Maybe lose yep. some of that. That's cultural yeah, values. I gave a um, um, I gave a presentation on Saturday um, at a conference here on the Gold Coast. Uh, it was a, a lawyers' association conference, and I did it on um, the topic was uh, uh, ethical leadership to build trust, and that ethical leadership exactly the same. You know, the research I, I put into that presentation was also that from an ethical leadership point of view what we believe is right or wrong to do as a, as a leader um, changes depending on our environment. So you start hanging around a bunch of people where it's okay to hide that from the client or it's okay to make that decision, then your ethics start to change or in the decisions, you, the choices you make start to change. Um, also fascinating stuff like um, just simple things, the amount of sleep people get um, uh, the level of testosterone in both men and women, the amount of stress people are under can impact the choices that they make uh, and how they behave and and all of that stuff and, and the ethical decisions they make. And, you know, I gave some examples and, of course, spoke about, you know, the Australian cricket team, spoke about the Banking Royal Commission, the Aged Care Royal Commission and all this stuff that has gone on With where people... Yeah, people are in groups kind of seeing some of this behaviour and just going along with it, just kind of like, okay, well, this is what we do around here. It's not just that. It's incentivised to do the to do what's technically wrong, but the way that the structure is set up and all these things is incentivised to do the wrong thing rather than doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. And again... Which may be accidental know, often. They don't realise they've set the structure up in that, in that way. Yeah, yeah, maybe accidental, maybe not. Maybe but not. Um, uh, but again, I think it's oh, yeah, because you talk so much in leadership around having this, having this courage and 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 to speak up and to make the tough choices and to do all of that. And it's another example where that has to happen. You know, well, if you feel the, like part of the change yeah. is changing what's incentivized and what's discussed and rewarded. Yeah, and that's cultural, you know, like, because it's like, as you know, if you're raising children, like for me, my children have learned very early on what is rewarded by their mum and what's not. And so they've learned that being quite extroverted and, and certain behaviours and certain things to say and play and all of that, they've been patted on the head for that. Like, great, 
you know, this is what we do around here. And other stuff that they've done um, has been frowned upon or been ignored. Or and it's the same in organisations. It's the same with it's the same with culture. Now, if people are rewarded for things, they will just keep doing it. <laughs> you know, um, it's just you know we we teach people how to behave and what's good and what's bad. Um, so I think in some industries now, in some organisations. Some of this stuff has to go right back to basics. What, what are we here for? What are we about? What do we believe in at our core? And because of those belief, because of those beliefs, what's acceptable behavior and what's not? And we're going to call it out if it's not acceptable behavior. That's great. Mm. It's a heavy, it's a, deep, a very deep conversation getting into all of this stuff. <laughs> it is. But great stuff. Excellent. You said you also do presentation stuff and what you do, teaching them how to present and uh, conduct meetings. Mm. Yeah. Just how to speak with influence and and how to, I don't know, how to weave messaging, um, how to weave your values and, and those beliefs and and how to, how to inspire people to take action because that's what you're trying to do as a leader. You want people to do something for you. That's the game. Um, and so, you know, I just work with leaders about, so what is the best way to get that from your people? So I talk a lot about, you know, commitment versus compliance. And in organizations, I see a lot of compliance. I see a lot of people rocking up at the time they rocking up. I see them doing their work, getting on a bit of social media, clocking off, going, doing whatever. And what I want to see is, is, is heartfelt commitment. I call it the cut and bleed, which sounds a bit awful, but that someone would cut and bleed for a leader, for an organisation. And, and for me, I absolutely experienced that. Like at Shine, like I was 100% committed like it was like they would have asked me to jump off a bridge. I probably would have done it. Maybe I would have asked. Hmm, I wonder what this is about. But then I would have done it. It was um. It's something I've never got. Like I understood it, but I never really got it. Especially I go through a part of town where all the law firms are these days. I go and go for my ride. Oh yes, yeah. So we go like eight a.m. when everyone's staying to rock up to work and just go for our cycle. But everyone is miserable. I know, and I have a personal mission statement for me and my business and just for the work I do. Um, and the mission statement is I want everyone to feel like I felt on a Monday morning. That's my personal mission <laughs> statement for corporate Australia because I want everyone to feel that because I could not wait to get to – like Sunday night, I'm like, Woo! I'm so excited. And the kids were like, Mom, you're so excited. I'm like, yeah, because tomorrow I get to go to work. And that doesn't happen. And it's around leadership that that doesn't happen. It's around culture and it's around leadership. That's why that doesn't happen. So I'm on a mission. So it's culture and leadership that make the big changes there, not, not the diet, not other stuff? But is that a major factor of what – well, I just think, um, oh, well, I think I'm, it is, I think, quite holistic as well. 
I absolutely. And I talk a lot about leadership and lifestyle. Do you know what I mean? So I'm uh, I'm quite corporate in my in my focus, but I also think that everything else in your life obviously has a huge part to play in what you bring to work. Uh, so that stuff, particularly that, if I'm, yep. Because we don't teach that through school, we don't teach that through universities. Is that something that um, leaders should be looking to implement for their staff so they can learn about things we don't talk like getting, change your diet to improve their moods or I guess extra sort of trainings that you would not think of to provide for lawyers. Yeah, I know. I know. I read a great article. Someone gave me a great article, um, and I don't know who wrote it. I don't know who read it. It's called The Corporate Athlete. It may have been a Harvard Business Review article, but it's a great article, The Corporate Athlete. And it talks about like being like the athlete, like having everything kind of in place to run your best race. And that, yeah, all of that stuff, like, uh, you know, socially where you're at physically where you're at emotionally where you're at spiritually all everything yeah um the whole spectrum um comes into play when you step into your role at work um and particularly leaders who are having the most influence across an organization um that the the rhythm and the daily practices and weekly practices and all of that stuff that you do um is super important. I, I, I think people are becoming more aware of that. I don't know. I've Maybe I just because I'm in the space. Do you think people are getting more aware of it? I've got a feeling they are, or either yeah. that or they're, it's becoming more acceptable for them to talk about it. Like, yeah. I'm not sure which one it is, but I know a lot of CEOs, I know that a lot of A-type personalities are pushing their health. They are trying to make sure they're performing in other areas, but now it's becoming more talked about, perhaps? Yeah. Yes. So I do a bit of work for WSP, um, the big engineering, the Canadian engineering yeah. firm, but they're in Australia as well. Um, and I heard their CEO speak, I've heard him speak a number of times, but he talks about, uh, and I did a blog on it, that health is the entry ticket to the game. So if you don't have your health, you're not, e- you're not even in the game yet. It, you know, it's absolutely the entry ticket. And he speaks about it to the new grads, which I've heard him speak about what he does and his daily routines and how he looks after himself and his health and his relationships, personal relationships, for him to step into that role of CEO. Um, and I think it's a wonderful message. Every time I hear him speak, I'm like, love that. And that's what, you know, that's and a that's culture what I thing talk- too. Like, yeah. if they take care of, if they, okay, I know some cultures will wear. Any other way to say this? With the leadership team are fat slobs. Yeah. <laughs> if your teams and they value the work and putting in the hours rather than actually taking care of yourself and putting in quality work. Well, yeah. And it's the same, exactly the same with families, exactly the same. So, you know, if you've got your parents as leaders and they are out kicking the football, going for a walk in the morning, swimming in the pool, what we eat for dinner, even our jobs and how we approach our jobs. Like I'm very mindful of even if I'm uh, if I'm struggling with something or just being able to articulate that in front of the kids. And um, 
I don't know, just them seeing what I've done and some of the risk I'm taking and what I'm trying to achieve and like your people see all of that and they mimic that. That becomes the norm in a family for your children but as a leader in your organisation, you do the same for your people. So, you know, um, and so I've seen it vice versa. Un unspoken yeah. cultural... Unwritten ground rules. Unwritten ground rules. Yeah. And I've seen leaders do exactly the opposite. I've, I've spoken to law firms where, or practice managers of law firms that say, you never see the partners. Like, <laughs> but you never see them. Like, they're out doing this or they're out doing that and there's this sense of just questioning where the hell are they and what are they doing? Um, it's very hard to build commitment to a leader and organisation with absent leaders and with leaders that are not, you know, just that behavioural integrity. Feels like, like they're on the golf course all the time. Yeah. Or if they are, you don't really know what they're doing. Yeah. That's right. Um, or if, yeah, the leader is stressed out, if they're working 14-hour days, if they're not taking care of themselves, then it's very hard then for the rest of the organisation to go, okay, well, that's not, you know, that stuff's not valued around here. Um, so the eyes are on you all the time as a leader. That's what I keep saying. I'm, uh, you know, I, I did a course in Disney um, uh, in Orlando years ago now. 2010, I think I went there um, and spoke at a yes. conference and and did the Disney did the Disney Institute courses yeah. while I was over there. I thought I'm going to do a few of those. And Disney talks about you know being on stage all the time. And as soon as yeah, as soon as you walk in the Disney gates, if you've got your little badge on, you are on stage. It doesn't matter if you haven't hit your ride yet <laughs> or your you know restaurant where you work or whatever. You are on stage. And I say that to leaders all the time. You are on stage. You're on stage with your social media, with what you're putting out there. You're on stage as soon as you show up in the office, at events, any like you're on stage. And so your leadership brand, your identity, being on point with that stuff, making sure it's authentic so you can keep this up. Otherwise, you can't keep this up. Like it's too hard. So it has to be real. Um, and your values of your organization, the culture of your organization has to reflect that as well. Um, and then you'll get the right people into your organization, you'll get commitment from them, and then you get performance. Um, and without it, you're getting bare minimum, high turnover, low engagement, blah, all the HR stats you want to talk yeah. about. Yeah. Which is approached, yeah. I'm assuming most of it's generally approached from the wrong angle where you look, look, need to look at the culture first. Yeah, well, that's and that's my bias and I get that. Um, and, you know, if people want to go heavily into uh, strategic planning or, or operational work, that's just not the work I do. And I've got friends who do it. So I'll put you in touch with, with those people. Um, but this is my bent on leadership. This is my sandbox that I play in and I'm biased towards it but I think you have to be you know what I mean I think if you're passionate about your mm. area of leadership then go for that and, and of course I think it's the most important thing I'm sure others would argue but uh, that's my both. take culture every um pretty much every CEO that I've interviewed who has a fast-growing company 
has drilled in the importance of culture. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it, absolutely, of course, um, everything has this balance to it in life, isn't it? Everything is a balance. Everything is like courage and consideration and humility and confidence and, and uh, you know, um, culture and strategy. I mean, everything is balanced. That's nature. We've got to keep doing this in everything well, in life. Strategy means getting, strategy is part of your culture, getting the right people in for that to think strategically. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I love that. Um, was it Peter Drucker who says, was it Peter Drucker who said culture eats strategy for breakfast? Yeah. I uh, love, love that. It's was Peter Drucker? It's Drucker. Yeah. Accredited to him. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for me, you can have the best laid strategy, you know, whether that's a two-year, three-year, five-year strategy, whatever, you know, whatever strategic planning you're doing and moving towards. But if there's not a cultural alignment with that strategy, you won't hit it. You won't hit the targets. Um, so similarly, or I think with, with leadership, you know, if I'm going into law firms and stuff, I'm like, oh, my goodness, of course – Lawyers need technical training and they need legal training. They need to keep up their technical training, but we also need this leadership training as well. And so we've got to do it simultaneously. Um, you can't just, you know, work on this and then drop that and then work on something else. Um, yeah, that's what makes it interesting and tough and why not everyone gets it right? Because it was easy, everyone would get it right. <laughs> who does get it right in terms of for, in, in the legal world? Who gets it right on a big scale? Who've been able to grow to grow the business massively? Oh, that's a good question. Or who gets mostly right? Yeah. So. For me, it's, it's different cultures. So I've seen a number of like smaller boutique firms that have opened up, and some of my friends have opened like boutique law firms up, um, and they're growing. So they've got about you know five, ten, you know, fifteen kind of people are starting to grow that. So I think what I'm seeing with them is getting the groundwork done right to start with. So they're doing the work on you know culture and values and and you know, the one-page strategic plan, and they're just they're getting all their ducks lined up in a row. So I love that. Um, certainly, of course, for me, um, Shine was a lovely example of a, a wonderful culture and, and hiring based on culture and, and getting that absolutely right because you don't get that kind of commitment from that many people for so long without having that. Yeah. Um, I think from a so public uh, perception, they did have that little guy, with the worries for little guy perception in the public arena, at least. Yeah, yeah. And I also think that you know when you've got culture right, when mm, people start like poking fun a little bit at your organisation. And I, this came across to me lately with another organization and I'm, I'm not going to name it, but it's, it's, um, uh, uh, not law, but it's another organization yeah. uh, here in Australia. And someone spoke to me and said, 
it's a little bit like a cult. I think it's like a cult. <laughs> and as soon as that person said that to me, I, 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 I actually respond very positively to that. And cult's the wrong word. A lot of the, lot of the, lot of the features of a cult is loyalty and people loving it. Yeah, it's it's tribal, right? Tribal, and cult maybe. has a cult has a negative a, connotation. A, a negative connotation to it, but you know, and people say that about Shine too. People would be like, when I left Shine, they're like, oh my god, they let you out, you know. <laughs> and but I took that as a real compliment to the organisation because it means that people feel like they belong, and it, when you're in, you're in, and it's tribal, and it's a sense of belonging. There's a sense of safety. There's a real sense of who we are and what we do and being on purpose. And and so I love that. So as soon as I kind of hear inklings of that, I'm interested in an organization because I'm like, okay, they've really got that, um, got that connection happening. And people who are not part of that feel like they're not part of it and are interested in like what goes on there because how come these people are so devoted and so loyal? And it's cultural leadership. That's what it is. It's, it's fantastic leadership. So, um, yeah, always interested to hear comments like that about organisations, about law firms. And it's we had it shine. So we were all called shiners. And that's, that, was the, that was the term. So if someone would join shine or if been there for, or we're hiring, we'd go, uh, I don't think they're a shiner. I don't think they're a shiner. And that was so we and you and everyone who was part of the tribe knew what a shiner was. It would need no description. Yeah, is it an unspoken tribal term, or is that something that? Like we just used it internally. It was just people are. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating are they, are they, how that stuff develops. Yeah. Have you seen other examples of this in other organisations? I'm trying to think if I've got another example. Not on a big scale. I've seen like small scale stuff of people calling themselves. Whereas so-and-so's? Yeah. Oh, podcast tribes. Like, podcast calls their listeners a certain tribe or something. They'll have a tight-knit audience that have their own yeah, what does What does Lady Gaga call her fans? Monsters, doesn't she? Little monsters, doesn't she call Is them? It? I think they're... Someone will probably tell me that I'm right or wrong. I'm sure it's little monsters she calls them. And it's... Again, it's this. It's belonging. And, you know, why I'm so passionate about this now is that I think absolutely now more than ever, people want this from their organisations and from their leaders because they're not getting it at home. We're not getting it from our personal lives. We're kind of, you know, we, we don't have the huge families we used to. We're not living, you know, I lived next door to my grandparents and my aunt and uncle lived next door with their four kids and great auntie Ivy whose fiancé died in the war, she lived behind us. Well, that's how I grew up. Like family everywhere, sense of belonging. People don't have that now. Um, a lot of people I'm meeting, especially with kids and that, you know, they're, they're living in a city where they don't have much family. Um, and, you know, of course we're connected and we've got 2,000 Facebook friends Not and like all of that stuff. A home <laughs> I don't know where I heard this. It was recently in other countries. Your home is your, your village is your home. That's what they see. Mm. In a lot of Western cultures, a home is the four walls that surround us. Yeah. Yeah. If you that's if you're lucky enough to 
have a tight knit family in the first place. So sometimes it's even smaller than the four walls. Yeah, that's right. And I think, um, yeah, so I think the, the part that organizations and businesses and leaders are playing is to give people that sense of safety and security and belonging. You know, all Maslow's great stuff that we need. Um, yeah, it, it, it's 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 got to be fulfilled somewhere, and I think people are looking to organisations and leaders for that. And I know we hear we can hear stats about people changing jobs and changing careers, and but I wonder what's the underlying factor of that? Why they're changing jobs? Yeah, and I think you know what if if we could create great culture and cultural organisations and great cultural leaderships in in corporate Australia. I think we would see a shift. I think we'd see, like me, the 19 years tenure at a law firm. Um, we would see more of that. I, I think people are longing for it. They're just not finding it yet. But when they find it, I think absolutely they will grab onto it, where they're valued for their contribution, where they feel they belong, where there's that values alignment, where they feel part of a tribe, where they can do meaningful work work the way they they want to have that i mean why it's would what, you leave three to six years now pardon how long do people normally stay within the law uh, law career thing it's oh not long not long i don't know i should know them but i don't know them off the top of my head i think from what i remember it's shockingly short for considering how much time you put into studying it i know so you gotta do a four years degree first then you've got to do your prac, your prac course as yep. well, your articles or whatever you want to do after that. So, you know, it's a good, you know, five, six years. And, um, you know, I, I see, burnt, I talk to burnt out lawyers all, all the time, talk to corporate refugees. They make up the coffee shops on Brisbane and the Gold Coast every day. With their little laptops, we're all sitting there and we've all escaped, you know, trying to do something, um, trying to do something for ourselves. And I'm not saying that that's that's not a, a good thing. That can be a great thing for some people to leave corporate and to set up their own businesses. But I also believe that corporates are losing a lot of great people who sh absolutely should be there and have so much to contribute, but are just done and burnt out. And, and you know, just at the height, just, you know, in their 40s and stuff where they're just – where it's all getting great and juicy and you have kind of this awareness that, and this deeper awareness you can bring to corporate is when people leave. Well, 40s, 50s, <sighs> 60s is where you have really have that high in-depth knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's what businesses, that's what, that's what we need. That's the kind of thinking we need. Um, and that's when we're seeing people transition out of their corporate careers and doing something different. Um, I think understanding that the culture has changed now. People do want that purpose and meaning, but they're not, not getting it in the current situations. Yeah. And it's... Mm, for me, it's an interesting one when I'm mentoring people and, you know... Um, asking the really deep questions and doing some deep reflection on... Yeah, like was it was it the work that I was doing? Was it the environment? Um, and 
yeah, is this is this getting out of it and doing something completely different? Is this is this a cop out? Are you running away from something or running towards something? You know, and I often ask people that. Um, yeah, like, are we absolutely passionate about running towards this next job or this next career change or whatever, or are we just doing this because we're running away from something over here? And are you running, to where, oh, running towards the same thing you just left? Yeah. I see some people often, just leave the same one job for a different title. Yeah. I just coached someone last week and, um, yeah, I suppose with my old age, I'm getting more brutal with my um, mentoring. Um, I'd hate to see what I'm like in the future. <laughs> <laughs> just wait for it. Give yourself another 10 years. And, and you know, she was talking about the role and, you know, that's not working, et cetera, et cetera. And I've just heard it for too long. And I just said, look, it's not the role. And it's not the law firm. It's you. It's you. And you know what? Yes, you could move law firms or do this, but unfortunately, yourself will come with you. And that's going to be a problem because you're not doing any work on this stuff. You're not doing any work on yourself. Um, and so it's all, it's all environmental and situational and all of that. I said, and look, this might not be the right law firm for you. I'm not saying it is. But let's do some work on this kind of stuff and you first and then make the decision. Um, because you could be leaving something that is absolutely right for you. It's just how you're approaching the role. And no one's forcing you to approach the role that way. You've made the decision to think about it that way. Um, and, yeah, she thought about that for a while. And, mm, she went, mm, mm. and I'm like, yeah. It's not, it's, it's not, in sometimes it's, it's not the role of the organization. Sometimes it's just the person that's in it and they need to do some work on themselves. And that's cool. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting one. And then they're big questions, you know, they're like, oh, they can, they can really mess with people sometimes. Sometimes you have to be a bit light with it. You know what I mean? Like sometimes I go deep, but then sometimes I'm like, we need some lightness to this now. We need to try some stuff out. We need to experiment with some stuff and see how we feel about it. Um, and not, I suppose, focus too much on getting things right the first time. And you can stuff up and you can fail and you can try some stuff and experiment. Um, hopefully not do too much damage. Um, and see what next. You know what? Just, and then what next? Well, <laughs> this has been incredible, Melinda. I think everyone should get a lot of value out of this call. If they do want to learn more about you and the work you work with corporates and uh, women leadership and private coaching, where can they yes. go? Um, so, yeah, so my website is midjar.com.au. So it's M I D. J-A, and my email is midja at midja.com.au. Would love to hear from people and, and get their thoughts. And um, and so I have two books. Can I just put the books up? Yeah. That's all right. So I have the Confidence Book uh, for Women and also Great Lawyer to Great Leader. Um, I have the e-books for those as well and happy to give those out to the people that are watching. If you would love, just email me. 
and happy to give those out um, and get them out there and get people reading them and get some feedback about what people think. So happy to do that. Awesome. All right, guys, cool. until next time, we'll see you in the next show.